Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You didn't expect to hear from us again this week, and we didn't expect to be heard. But Friday was such a big news day with the president and COVID-19 that we have a lot more to talk about. It's This Week in the CLE, a special episode of our podcast discussion of the news from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with regulars Chris Wernowski and Jane Cahoon, and special appearance by our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Welcome all. I thought we were done for the week. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I thought no it was the happy hour right now. This will punctuate the week. When you're done here, you're done working, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. right. All right, look, we uh, this is a special episode, so it doesn't have to follow the same format. L- let's start with what just ended. Mike DeWine had a special availability. Really appreciate that he does that on big events. I mean, it wasn't a, it, something he has to do, but he knows people are anxious and he talks to them. And he said a couple of things that that were good, right? That that you know, if the president has it, we all know somebody who has it. Maybe we'll behave better. And if the president has it, it means everybody can get it. So let's talk about the good parts about my, what Mike DeWine said, and then we'll get to the bad parts. You know, do you do you think he did a good thing? Do you think he soothed any anxiety? Jane, oh, you go I don't first. know. Yeah, he he said it's a powerful reminder to us all that we have to do these basic things. We we have to wear a mask. We have to social distance and be careful and avoid big crowds. So you know, he said those things before, but but he brought it a little more into focus in the context of, you know, the leader of our country being down with this virus. Well, I do get questions from people uh, fairly regularly saying. You know, I, I don't I think this is overblown. I don't know anybody that's had it. Do you? And I've explained before. I say, well, I have an uncle who died of it. So, yeah, I do. But there are a lot of people, I think, that still don't feel a connection to it. And DeWine's point was everybody feels like they know the president. So suddenly everybody has that connection. Seth Richardson, you know, he's a politician. He's a political animal. But since this broke, he has stood in front of us with a regularity to be the calming presence. And so today, when a big earth-shaking news story happens, he very quickly sets up, hey, I'll, I'll address you. I'll talk about this. Not, not the most common thing for politicians today, right? To play the soothing, you know, nice dad role. No, definitely not common. Uh, certainly not common with um, most politicians throughout my career. In fact, you know, most of them, frankly, don't want to answer my uh, uh, my phone calls on just a regular day when I may be just saying hello. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I guess he does deserve some kudos for getting out there and answering questions weekly, um, especially when you look at uh, 
some of the the closed off uh, nature of politicians in some other states. And I think, yeah, what he was definitely trying to do today was uh, really kind of drive it home because he's always he's always been, you know, had more uh, taken it more seriously, the virus more seriously than a lot of his GOP counterparts. And that includes within the state. And I think he's kind of uh, I hate to use this word because I think he is concerned for, you know, the president's health. But I think he's kind of hoping that, hey, maybe this is sort of the thing that drives it home to a lot of the uh, the anti-maskers and those around the state who've really, you know, who right, like launched impeachment hearing or uh, tried to impeach him and things like that. I'm hoping that I think he's hoping that it'll maybe quash some of that a bit. OK, that's that's the segue we needed to get to the second half of the DeWine conversation. So he opened this briefing in a little bit of a weird way. He, you know, he went to the numbers and the numbers in Ohio suddenly are very bad. Uh, the number of cases is rocketing. The number of deaths is high. The number of hospitalizations is high. Things are are getting out of control. And the reporters who were questioning him. We're asking about all of the things we've seen, political gatherings, Trump gatherings, where people aren't wearing masks. And and yet, <laughs> even though he's talking about the dire situation and even though he's talking about maybe this will get through to people, Chris Warnowski, he didn't seem like he's going to try and put any more controls on the stuff that's out of control. That's, uh, you know, that has been a common theme throughout a lot of these these briefings is that, you know, we'll we'll start out with a hard look at some pretty bad numbers. And then, you know, he'll receive questions about, well, does this mean you're going to implement, you know, more stringent uh, regulations on on mass gatherings and stuff like this? And today he just, you know, I don't know if he notices it when he does it, but today he was just like most of Ohio's open and most of Ohio, you know, most of the things are open and I can't. I can't really, you know, make an exception for political rallies. And so his, you know, his very sort of libertarian, it's all on you approach has, you know, it's it's an old song and dance by now. You know, we've heard this throughout it, that that this is a matter of personal responsibility and and, you know, all the way down to the issue of opening schools and opening, you know, other institutions. He's just like, well, I'm just going to leave it up to you to be responsible. And and you hear sometimes a little bit of desperation in his voice when he's talking about mask wearing, when he says, if we can just get 80% of Ohioans to put on masks, we can nip this thing in the bud. And it's like, okay, like we've been going at this long enough that, that, you know, at, at some point you may have to make a difficult decision that rattles people who generally support you. That's Although, what leadering, being a leader and governing is about. Right. And that's what I said this morning. The most effective message in that vein right now would be the president. If mm -hmm. the president got up and said, yeah, I'm not feeling that great. Uh, this is bad. Wear a mask. It, it would be profound. And then it would give leave to all the rest of the governors to do the same. OK. Could Seth I also say that I'm sorry to, to step ahead. on Seth here, but, you know, he also wouldn't even express an opinion about the lawmakers that are roaming around the state house, his fellow Republicans without masks and attending hearings without masks and endangering other people. He was just like, no, that's a separate branch of government. You know, did um, I mishear him? Did he say maybe they'll wear masks as a result of this? There was a moment where I looked away and I thought yeah, I heard him say that. Potentially the, I, you know, the most Pollyanna kind of thing that he said was, <laughs> Uh, I'm not I'm not going to assume that these lawmakers won't wear masks in the future. And it's it, oh, okay. I don't know. It just it really runs contrary to that entire message that he's had this entire, 
you know, throughout this entire pandemic, he's basically said, I'm going to, I have to take people at face value, right? I have to take the president at face value. I have to take these lawmakers at face value. Well, at face value, they haven't been wearing masks for six months and they've actively been trying to undermine everything that you've done. I think that, you know, it's pretty safe to assume that that is going to be their uh, their move going forward. Although, I don't know, maybe maybe the president getting it will be the wake up call. Seth, you wrote a story uh, today that pointed out that his family, Donald Trump's family, didn't wear masks in the debate venue, even though it was the rule. Um, and, it, and it was kind of shocking, some of the details on that. So talk a little bit about what you found in that story from the people that were there. I do want to point out, Seth was not in the venue because I wouldn't let him be. Uh, we were really worried about making deadline and I didn't trust the, the Cleveland Clinic Wi-Fi. So I made him work from home. It wasn't his fault, but I might have saved your life. So there you go. Yeah, there we go. My, my home office is much cozier anyway. So, um, yeah, you know, the, the like we all saw this on Tuesday night, right, where there were, you know, photos and some video of the president's family, the his adult children. Um, you know, kind of sitting in the front row, not wearing a mask. And I don't know that it's anything that like it was kind of an aside on Tuesday. Right. Just because of everything that happened on Tuesday. Right. It certainly wasn't the <laughs> biggest story in the world. It was a, a nugget of what the biggest story was. Right. The, the headlines the next day were not going to read like, hey, there was a debate. And by the way, the family didn't wear a mask. But when when you look at it through the lens of what's happened in the past, you know, 24 hours with the president testing positive, and having been in close contact with all of these people, and all of these people were in the debate hall not wearing masks. Like as, as far as I can tell, pretty much the only people who weren't wearing masks uh, were the president's family, uh, despite being asked to by the Cleveland Clinic, despite coming in with a mask, and despite the clinic setting up rules that very clearly said everybody who was in the debate hall who was not on stage has to wear a mask. Those were the, That was one of the guidelines. And when the clinic was announced as the health advisor for the Commission on Presidential Debates, they said that they were going to, you know, have these rigorous standards. Every, you know, everybody was going to have to abide by these really rigid protocols because they wanted to take health safety and health security very seriously. And, you know, to just let the president's family flaunt that. And then two, three days later, you have the president of the United States and Melania Trump, who, you know, went on stage without a mask on, for, uh, you know, at the end of the debate. Is just it's it's baffling in a way. Right. So, right. We may have a super spreader event that the clinic hosted. <laughs> We're going to talk in a minute in a little while about a story Bob Higgs just published about they've already traced 11 cases to the preparation for this debate. And they don't know how many were, were spread that night. So John Houston was on the briefing today. He was at the debate and he was asked twice about what he saw. And I was kind of surprised that he said, hey, look, I had a bad seat, but everybody I saw was wearing a mask. This was great. The Cleveland Clinic did a great job. Well, did the Cleveland Clinic do a great job if it let people who were in the venue not wear masks? Did they have a duty to everybody else who was in the venue to say to Trump's family, look, those are the rules. Wear a mask or get out. You don't get to sit here without a mask on your face. I'm surprised that you are surprised that John Husted said that, frankly, because <laughs> one of the problems with these daily briefings and or these weekly briefings, and you know, again, I'm I'm happy that they ha that they happen and that reporters have a chance to ask questions. But one thing that has you know they've consistently kind of turned into is um, you know, especially whenever the conversation turns to the president or what is going on nationally, you all of a sudden have 
you know, John Houston and Mike DeWine not being able to discuss kind of on the level what's going on. They refuse to even acknowledge kind of the basic fact of what, you know, we were talking about, and that is the president's family was not wearing masks. And instead, you get this, you know, interpretive dance of what uh, John Husted <laughs> said he saw at the debate when there's very clear video and photo evidence. And he's like, well, no, the, the Cleveland Clinic clearly did a great job. And if they did such a great job, then why weren't the rules enforced? Why weren't the rules enforced for a family that now has a family mem- two family members who have tested positive for coronavirus and have come into contact with who knows how many other people? And it's again, I, I it's it, it it does make it frustrating as a reporter when you're trying to report on these things and you can barely agree on the basic facts of what's going <laughs> okay. on, despite there being photo evidence. All right, all right. So you're right that we do not know how many people they have exposed to it. It sounds like everybody on the plane may have been exposed. The Air Force One. Uh, we know that Rob Portman and Jim Jordan both spent time with the president this week. Um, what what What's happening there, Jane? Well, uh, both have uh, undergone tests, and uh, we haven't heard anything about the results yet, although they did promise to reveal those results. Rob Portman was at an event at the White House the, the day before the debate where where Trump summoned reporters outside to see the Lordstown Endurance electric truck, uh, you know, on the on the eve of the debate, you know, to talk about jobs coming back to the Mahoning Valley. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so he he was in contact with the president, although he said he wasn't close. But as a precaution, he got a test. And then uh, Jim Jordan flew on Air Force One. He flew from Washington to Cleveland, but did not take the flight back, apparently. But he was on the same plane. Uh, He said that he felt great and he worked out. And I believe he virtually attended a hearing today in Congress. But once again, we have not heard about the results of his test. Yeah, he's got a few days where he's probably going to be nervous. And when we talked to Mike DeWine in a special episode a couple of weeks ago, we asked him about you know, did, when you tested positive before you found out it was a false positive, you know, did you have some moments there where you were thinking about your mortality? You're not, you're, you're in the age classification where this can be scary. And he said, oh yeah, there was, there was a, a few scary moments there. And I imagine anybody on that plane right. having a few scary moments. All right, Chris, you know what let's... we should say too, speaking of um, Air Force One, DeWine uh, said today, and I, I had forgotten about this, when Trump was in Dayton recently for his rally, was that last week or was it already the week before? Um, DeWine was there to greet him in Dayton, and he said today that he and his wife, Fran, boarded Air Force One and went into the president's cabin to greet him. And they were wearing masks, but the president was not. So yeah, but DeWine is taking the precautions. Go ahead, Chris. Right. Is is that the rally where John Houston was booed for asking yes. people to wear yes. masks? That, that <laughs> Which was he posted about today. He said in the briefing today, hey, I exhorted people there to wear masks. He didn't say they booed him up. Yeah, he didn't say what the response was to that <laughs> request, <laughs> but All he right. certainly brought it up. All right. So let's talk about what what could happen here. You know, we had a story by Julie Washington that talks about Trump's age, his obesity, uh, other health factors that put him in the very worst risk categories for this thing. For the people who get the sickest, for the people who die, they're in his category. So so, you know, what is the possible progression now that he has 
the early symptoms. It means that his body is not one of those bodies that just knocked this thing back without him knowing about it. What what did we find when we looked at the potential ways this can go? So, you know, there, it's it's a variety of things, but you're right. His age and, and his weight do not really do him any favors. Right now, he's sort of in this what they would probably categorize as like a preliminary state. But it but, you know, he's he's far from at least we uh, from what we know right now, he's he's pretty far from the worst stage, which would be, you know, a necessary visit to an ICU where he might have to be put on a ventilator. So, you know, there's there's about four steps in between where he's at and where he could be and where most people go when things get really out of control. Um, but, you know, you have to imagine that he, he's probably going to have access to, you know, very good health care and very good treatment. And, you know, should he follow, you know, a legitimate scientific regimen for trying to deal with this, then, you know, he might be able to get it under control before it, 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 you know, it starts to get into, you know, spread out through his lungs and, 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 you know, you know, the last thing he wants is to get ARDS and, and have to be put on a ventilator. So, but, but with his age and his weight, it, it, it could, I mean, it could turn on a dime, you know, I mean, in the snap of a finger, he could, he could just, his, well, his, you, his condition could worsen. I mean, we, right. He doesn't take good care of himself. He eats, I mean, he's famous. He eats McDonald's. It's like he eats terrible food. He doesn't work out. He's overweight. I mean, but and the biggest factor over and over again is the obesity. Uh, and that, that's, that's like doom. You talk about having the best health care. There are a lot of people in Cleveland have gone to the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, Metro Health. We got pretty good health care. They still die. I mean, there are people that die mm-hmm. a week after their first um, their first symptoms. So Evan, Mc, Evan McDonald wrote the story. It's on Cleveland.com about how it might progress and how it'll, it could go away. And, you know, we certainly hope that he's one of the lucky ones for whom it's minor symptoms. He gets passed and there's no residual effects. Evan right. also is looking at with Julie Washington the different ways this can be treated. If you'll recall, in the beginning of this pandemic, a whole lot more people were dying who went into ICU. Uh, the ventilators were originally seen as the big end-all, be-all. Now it's like you don't really want the ventilator in most cases. So what are, apart from injecting bleach or <laughs> using a malaria drug that doesn't work, what are the things we've learned about how you can knock this back? You know, one of the things that that really hastens people's death is their immune system storm that comes, you know, that go, the immune system goes haywire trying to fight this thing. And that's what ends up killing people. But doctors have figured out how to stop that. So what are the ways you go about treating this now? There's four kind of key, key paths to go down. Um, one of the... Um... One of the things that we, it's called, uh, is it, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the R medicine. The remdesivir. Rem- 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 <laughs> right. right. So that's an antiviral drug that was developed by Gilead Sciences. And it was one of the earliest drugs to actually show promise in the fight against this. Um, early trial data showed that the drug actually helped shorten the recovery time for patients who were hospitalized with it. Uh, but other studies have found that its benefits are kind of modest. So it's still iffy on that. Um, steroids is another thing that they have used. Uh, it's often used that things, you know, steroids are often used to treat things like arthritis and allergic reactions and 
Uh, and that's it, the one that really stops the immune system storm. It just kind of shocks the system right. back into some sort of normalcy. Yeah. Uh, convalescent plasma is the other thing. This is where they take plasma um, from a recovered patient and administer it to somebody who is moderately or severely ill. Um, some hospitals here in Northeast Ohio, including the clinic and university hospitals, has actually been studying the use of this in COVID-19 patients. Um, just last month, the Trump administration announced that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was issuing emergency authorization for healthcare workers to use this. Do we think he treatment. would? Do we think he would allow somebody else's blood to be put into his body? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> would he want to know who it is? Oh Lord, that's a. Let's not go down that rabbit hole, please. <laughs> uh, I think if he feels lousy enough, you know, he'll he'll go for it. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's one of those things where it was, this was used as, uh, to treat emerging viruses like Ebola and SARS, but it's, there's never been any really definitive determination of whether it's effective or not. So, you know, the jury is still out on that one too. And then the fourth one is the antibody, uh, treatment, which is another experimental option that he could consider. Um, which is using antibodies, which are the, the what is it, the monoclonal antibodies, which are yeah. synthetic versions of proteins produced by your immune system. And early results uh, with trials involving two separate drugs have been promising. But again, this is it's the same story with every sort of treatment for this. It's it's sort of promising, but you know, d results aren't definitive yet. You know, these things but take time. But with all of the things that they're doing and what they've learned, they, they it has had fewer people in the I, ICU die. And I mean, in the beginning, it felt like once you were in the ICU, you were a goner. Or the minute they put you on a ventilator, your odds went way down and things are, are better. So right. him getting it now rather than back in the spring, if he gets very sick, um, you know, with the quality of the care he'd get and the, the methods available, he'd be okay. Uh, keep so in mind, I, like I, mo I, most people are being told, like most people who are diagnosed are, t are told, like, go home and rest. Like, like a lot of times for people, it's not even the drug treatment uh, part I, of it. So I, I do think people should be prepared for the possibility that it, you know, it, like, not that it's necessarily going to happen, but that it could very well last a long time. Like, Let's not forget, I mean, we like other world leaders have caught it and they they were under for, you know, under the weather for quite some time. Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, um, you know, he was getting top notch health care. He was still out of commission for a very long time. And uh, I, I think it's just something that people should prepare for, not saying that it's going to happen. But, um, you know, there, there's the very real possibility this is not like over this weekend. No, I mean, we keep we keep talking about Sherry Bevan Walsh, the Summit County prosecutor who announced what this was like. She was hospitalized and is out. Uh, and she talked about how sick she is and that she's got a recovery ahead. And you know, we've heard tell of people that are dealing with symptoms and and ramifications of this months later. So that's a good point. OK, so let, let's talk about the Cleveland Clinic. We we thought when the Cleveland Clinic unilaterally grabbed this debate to host it, that the biggest threat to its reputation was that we would have protesters that turn violent. We never considered, really, that it could be a super spreader event, which actually is kind of worse when you're in the health business. So uh, they have to notify people who were at this event now that you might have been exposed, right? We have a story that says that. Yeah, Anybody? that's, yeah, that's, you know, they they said today that they're going to notify people and they don't think everybody needs to be retested again but then you know it come come to find out that 
um, you know, there were other people who also tested positive who were involved in the planning. And again, like the thing that just keeps popping into my mind with this is, you know, you, you set these rules in place and these rules were set in place because you said we want to avoid the very thing that is happening right now. And you appear to have broken those rules yourself or allowed them to be broken. Um, yeah, it, it's just not a good look. Well, we asked the city today, um, Bob Higgs did, the City Hall reporter, is it your job, because this happened in the city, to do the contact tracing? We didn't get so much of a straight answer on that. What we got was they've been doing contact tracing on 11 cases that have come about from the people preparing for the debate. So before Donald Trump even walked into town, this thing already has 11 cases tied to it. And who knows how many other cases would will result from those 11. So this has the potential, bringing this debate to Cleveland, of infecting a whole bunch of people. We just don't know. Uh, Seth, are you kind of glad you weren't in the arena? Yeah, I, I, I'm happy. I, I, don't, I don't need to be in the uh, the, the dirty secret. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little, uh, you know, peel the curtain back just real quick on some debate for some people. The dirty secret is, you know, I, you don't actually get to be in the debate and get this like, you know, front row like view to everything. You're basically in a uh, um, a hall or like a, a some kind of a giant room that is set up into a bunch of different cubicles and you watch the debate on TV like everybody else. And then the you know the two campaign managers usually come in after the debate and say my campaign won and the other one's like no my campaign won and that's you know <laughs> that's about the benefit <laughs> of being there so no I'm, I'm i'm actually i'm quite happy that i didn't have to go there but um you know i i guess just to like to just go back to the cleveland clinic for just a sec you know i i think given all of the everything that we've seen happen around that and they have been they've been pretty quiet about all this they've sort of, you know, they haven't really wanted to address it. And I think they do kind of owe the public an explanation considering that the whole idea of this being at, you know, a Cleveland clinic site was that this is going to be, you know, it's the equivalent of having the debate in Fort Knox, right? It was supposed to be the safest environment possible. And it's pretty clear that it wasn't. Well, let's, um, let, let's wrap this up with a conversation that we touched on in the beginning about, could this be the game changer for the anti-mask movement. I mean, the, the, the anti-mask movement has been fed in large part by Donald Trump. I don't know if you guys saw, there was a study, I think came out of Europe last week that found that like 70% of the misinformation about the coronavirus that has been disseminated originated with Donald Trump. They went out and they, they, they did this massive look at every place where false information was and they traced it. They thought it was going to be conspiracy theories. It was Donald Trump, the, the most of it. So, so a whole bunch. I, so I'm reading that, thinking, okay, his bad messaging has caused a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding. People who don't wear masks point to the president who doesn't wear a mask. Now the president has the coronavirus. Does this change it? I mean, if you are an anti-masker. If you're one of these people saying it's all a hoax, it's it's overblown and the economy is more important. Does this change your argument? Do you start to get that this is something different? Chris, you go first. I, you know, I feel like if it it has to come from him, you know, I mean, what you just talked about this, this study, which, you know, I, I read the stories, too, about him being the largest purveyor of misinformation about this virus means that really he, he kind of has a responsibility to make this right. And 
you know, taking heat for his missteps and misdeeds is not really something that's in his wheelhouse. <laughs> it's not something that he has a history of doing. And, no. but, but, but I mean, think about it. It's, it's the guy who put that information out there. I feel like it's his responsibility to make this right. And I, go ahead. So Jane, you, you're surrounded by anti-maskers in your life. Do you think they'll all change their ways now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I I agree with what Chris said, um, and it, let's keep in mind it was only three nights ago when when Trump was on that stage, you know, mocking his opponent for wearing a mask. But one thing he did have one point, and that was the mixed messages that came out, you know, from the World Health Organization and the CDC early on about masks. It was very inconsistent. The thing is, we have known now for some time that masks do work. So, uh, but, but he brought up that confusion again, and I think it's very unlike him to, you know, suddenly say, you know, have this moment of contrition. I I don't think that's going to happen. All right, Seth, you get the last word. Do you think this will get through what's happened today? We'll get through to the deniers, the anti-maskers that they need to take precautions. Uh, no, one one thing that um, you know, information. Uh, the, the the president might may have been the the uh, the originator of a lot of the, most of the disinformation, misinformation, whatever you want to call it, around uh, you know coronavirus and masks and stuff. But um, you know, people uh, information ecosystems kind of build out from there, and it. I don't know that it. You know, if you're this far in and you've just been vehemently you know anti-mask for however long, I don't know that uh, necessarily one, you know, the president just coming out all of a sudden and saying it's actually going to do anything because uh, you're you're probably getting the information not just directly from the president, but from any number of, um, you know, shaky sources at best. So, uh, no, I, I honestly don't think it'll change much. All right. I hope you're wrong, but uh, you're probably not. So special episode. It's done. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back on Monday with a regular discussion of the news. 